Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Here we are back on the tape. Listen, big week for me personally. Couple things. John Cena, is that how you pronounce his name? C-E-N-A. He followed me on the Twitter. I mean, that is badass. Then I looked, he follows like 300,000 people, but I'm one of them. So including in a planet me, of- guy, Including me, by the way. He, he followed you as well. Amanda Diaz chiming in. The other big thing is one of my heroes. Listen, Keith Richards and I share a birthday. We're not born on the same day. We're born on the same date, not the same day. There is a difference. He's 20 years older than I am. But obviously, Charlie Watts passed away this week. I put him in top five drummers of all time in rock history. I'm curious as to your thoughts, gentlemen. The Stones were a great band. They are a great band. I was never a huge Stones fan. I love their music. I love their genius of kind of the Southern blues and jazz and morphing it into rock and roll. They're one of a kind for sure. I just haven't enjoyed seeing them in the last 10 to 15 years. And I want to kind of remember them back when they were 70s and, and 80s and, and not now. But Charlie Watts obviously was a master at his craft. And so, listen, it's sad, but 80, where do you sign up for that life? Let me be in a rock and roll band for, you know, 57 years or whatever it was. And I'll take 80 and exit anytime. I'm all in. You're all in on that. You know, it's funny that you said they should have stopped playing a long time ago. The first time I ever saw them was the Carrier Dome in 1987. It was fantastic. They were still, had a lot of energy. I saw them again in 1997 at Giant Stadium, and I actually got to give a high five to Keith Richards. They were coming from the mid-stadium through like this runway back to the main stage after playing Sympathy for the Devil. I put my hand out. He just smacked it, which is pretty amazing. But here's the other one. You got to go look at this. And this is what ruined the band for me. In 1995, Microsoft used them for their Windows 95. Do you remember that? Do you remember when they announced it at like a user conference and Bill Gates and the whole management team and Balmer, they're just jumping up and down, clapping to start me up. And I was like, Oh, man, it's just done. The Stones just put a fork in them. Start Me Up is one of the worst songs in the history of rock and roll. The Rolling Stones are one of the top three bands in the history of rock and roll. And you are listening to On the Tape. I'm Guy Adami, joined, as always, by Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. This week, we saw stocks, rates, and commodities rally. Oh, by the way, Bitcoin pushing up against 50,000. Even Chinese stocks caught a little bit of a bid. We're going to talk about in a second, and later we're going to go off the tape with the great Rich Greenfield of Lightshed Partners to talk about the streaming wars, AMC. Stick around. We got a pretty cool show coming up. But I want to say this. Tom Lee's talk about all the pieces are in place for an everything rally. And Tom Lee, X Energy, has been spot on. I'm just curious because here we are. Stock market continues to grind higher, gentlemen. What do you mean rally? What, what have we been in for the last several years? I mean, great call by Tom, but it gets better than this. I mean, this is outrageous. I don't think the breadth is great. But look at these levels every day on the S&P, NASDAQ, and the, and the Dow, and they're basically making new highs every single day with the exception of where we're sitting right now. But it's been one deep breath in, and then frickin' every dip gets bought. And until that changes, 
that's the way that this is going to go. Yeah, I think Tom's call, though, I mean, it's been pretty methodical, right? He has been a buyer of all dips. The S&P is up nearly 20% on the year. I think one of the things that we've been talking about over the last few months, I think is really telling, is that these dips keep getting smaller and smaller, right? As the market goes higher and higher. That's not a great setup, in my opinion, because we know that the breadth is weakening a little bit here. So sooner or later, you're going to have that sort of correction, put a little fear into the market. We have the VIX back as a teenager. We have uh, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield. Our friend Carter Braxton Worth, who was all over the rate decline over the last few months, is highlighting the fact that we've just had a breakout of this downtrend in the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield. He thinks we make a run for 1.45%. We're at 1.35. I guess the question is, if we overshoot that, guys, what's the market do? I do think we're getting through that. I do think we close the year at around 2% in a 10-year. And quite frankly, I do think if we get there, it's devastating for the broader market. A lot of people will say, wait a second, yields going higher means the economy's better. The market's going to go up. I don't know. I'm not in that camp. There are so many things at an inflection point. And let me give Carter real kudos. The guy went out on GLD you know, six weeks ago, called it a buy. It was around 166, 167. It stayed in the channel. He stayed with it. He came out on Twitter the day it was a low on a multi-week low, I want to say, Dan, 160, 161, and said it held to the penny, and it came back. Gold is at a massive inflection point. Rates are at a massive inflection point. So I got a question for you guys. Uh-huh. If you were to wake up and the market was down 5 to 7%, what would be the reason? And then I would follow that with saying if it proceeded to trade down 10 to 15% over a week or multi-week period – what happened? So I asked you guys that question. I'll jump in first. I love when you ask questions, Danny Moses. I would say one of two things happened. Either there was some unfortunate, obviously horrible terrorist event here in the United States, or the Chinese devalued their currency by a significant amount. That would be my answer to you. It's interesting, Guy, that you mentioned the Chinese devalue. If you go back six years, it was about late August, I think it was, when the, when the Chinese did devalue their wine. And that sent you know reverberations across risk assets all over the world. Our markets, it feels like it was, was that like the last real bout of volatility where it felt like it was a bit of a growth scare? I think that was a big part of it. And I think that this double line, Jeffrey Gunlock's call on the US dollar here, right, that they could lose the, the reserve currency status that it's had. I mean, think about really what's going on. When we're talking about markets, we're really talking about currency wars, aren't we? I think you're right, Guy. That would be it. I don't know, Danny, if there's some sort of black swan event that I can even kind of conceive of. Guy just mentioned a terrorist attack or something like that. I feel like every bad piece of news is met by dovish commentary from the Fed and action from the Treasury. And therefore, we keep seeing the reactions or the negative potential reaction to the stock markets muted. I'll just say this. I'm more in the camp of that three to five week sell off that's a double digit percentage one. And guy, you look at the S&P 500, it just touched 4,500. Where is that 200 day moving average that hasn't sniffed in a very, very long time? Yeah, just above 4,000 right now. And Danny, I know you probably have the answer to the question because you would never ask a question unless you knew the answer like all good attorneys. Just let me mention this. The NASDAQ composite now is the fewest number of stocks above the 50-day moving average since last September. And a stat from SoFi's Liz Young, who's joined us on the tape, the average number of 5% pullbacks per year since 1980 is four and a half. There have been zero so far this year. I mean, it seems too obvious that it won't ever happen, but I think it's a combination of factors. I think it's a massive move in the dollar higher 
for whatever reason, whether the Fed gets really hawkish and aggressive, that obviously would be one thing. I think there's still the potential people are going to at me and disagree. But if Tether is a turns out to be a fraud, and I think we'll only know that if Bitcoin has a progressive sell-off lower that'll beget that. I don't know that'll happen. I think that would actually hurt people. And I want to say one thing. People out there that hate hedge funds and, oh, you retail and hedge funds are evil. Guess what? Hedge funds that are short are natural buyers of stock. And I don't know what the current ratio is at the prime brokers that can tell us how short some hedge funds are. I can tell you this. It's not at a high. It's at a low. So when you get a sell-off in the market, it's what stabilizes the market where you can kind of find that natural bottom are hedge funds covering their positions. I don't think they're near as short as they have been in the past. And I think for the right reasons. And the last thing I'm going to say, and you mentioned Tom Lee, who's done a great job and all these strategists, you don't see a lot of bearish guys out there making calls. Why is that? If, if you're bearish and wrong on Wall Street, you lose your job. If you're bullish and right, everybody loves you. If you're bullish and wrong, eh, everybody was bullish, so it doesn't really matter. So I don't see a lot of people right now going out on a limb making short calls at all on that. So I don't know what, what it will be. To that end, earlier this week, Chris Harvey from Wells Fargo, who was low on the street in terms of his S&P forecast, actually now is high on the street. So you have capitulation not only in stocks, but now you have capitulation with analysts. One of the really interesting things that you can really garner, whether you're bullish or bearish or you're a strategist on the street, is the hate mail that you get. And I thought what Tom talked about when he was on, he could always tell when something was going to go up or down based on what he received back from him just making an objective call on something. That's with any strategist, by the way. As a matter of fact, we used to call analysts and like, all right, how much shit did you get for the call that you made today by lowering or raising estimates on XYZ? They're like, not a lot. We're like, all right, well, that's telling. And then the flip of that would be everybody jumped on me. That told me the analyst was going to be right, you know, when everyone jumps on you. So here's one of the most interesting things I thought in the stock market this week as rates kind of ticked higher a little bit. We saw banks firm up. We've been talking about that over the last couple of weeks. Banks stopped going down even as rates were making new lows a few weeks ago. And the other thing I thought was interesting, you remember back to Q1 when the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield went from 1% to about 1.77, I think the highs in late March is we really saw underperformance out of mega cap tech. And mega cap tech is obviously a huge beneficiary during the pandemic. They had outsized returns last year. So money was moving into more GDP sensitive areas. And Danny, you just said that, you know, or, or Guy, you just said that rates going higher might be indicative of a stronger economy. And that's why I think we saw a lot of money rotate into cyclically sensitive names. But when it comes out of big cap tech, the world worry that I have right now is that those top five names are 25% of the S&P and 45% of the NASDAQ 100. And last September, when the S&P sold off 10% and the NASDAQ sold off 10%, Apple and Amazon went down 20%. And that's a really important thing to focus on because right now, it doesn't feel like they can go down 2%, let alone 10%. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. The market just hangs in there. But one of the things that Danny's talked about pretty consistently, now all of a sudden this week, there was a Bloomberg article, more and more people are talking about it, is the global supply chain, which, by the way, is getting worse, not better. And a lot of people think, Danny, this is going to last until mid next year, which I happen to agree with, by the way. And that's going to continue to lead to higher prices and all this transitory bullshit that you hear about. Well, is exactly that transitory bullshit. It's also showing up in stock prices within sectors, right? The SaaS technology companies are just going to, they don't have supply chain issues. They actually sell software to help supply chain issues, right? Healthcare companies, yes. The equipment manufacturers, yes. But the biotech, they don't have those type of supply chain issues to a degree. And you're seeing the market start to bifurcate a little bit to kind of show you what who's winning and who's losing on that. And so there's a valid reason that these tech stocks continue to do what they're doing.
if you are a component supplier, right, to some of these OEMs and you're over in Asia and you're some of these places where there's bottlenecks and we know shipping costs have gone up, you know, sky high because the ability to kind of get this product and move it around has been also very difficult. It's interesting that the component suppliers are basically using it as a mulligan as it relates to their own forward guidance. And then we're seeing some OEMs like in the auto industry giving very conflicting messages about their ability to get product and what it might be for production. I mean, Ford in particular has had a a really tough time. I think that stock's down 20 some percent. I think GM also, they've had to stop down production in certain issues. But we've also seen OEMs in the tech space have some very different sort of commentary as it relates to smartphones. I think Apple, which is expected to release a whole slew, guys, this is going to get you really excited here, a whole slew of new iPhones in the fall here. You know, they basically on their last call didn't really seem to kind of raise uh, too many worries about that. No, it's interesting. I mean, I am not a fan, whatever. That's my personal grievance and my personal problem with Apple. But I digress. What I will say, though, in terms of the auto stocks, GM and Ford, The market doesn't seem to think the problems that they're facing are transitory. It's interesting. I mean, you mentioned how much those stocks have sold off over the last couple of weeks. It's fascinating. The market's shooting first, asking questions later. And I think that speaks to a supply chain that's not going to get sorted out anytime soon. I think there's been a mulligan. You got a mulligan for a quarter. Now we got another quarter. And if your strategy is hope, that's that's not going to work out for you. And I think people are starting to figure that out. This market is, you know, we're on a PE basis where we are sitting right now is not going to obviously take kindly to these type of things, at least company specific. So again, we've seen companies that have been rewarded for tackling the supply chain issues over a period of three to four months that are now getting everything in order. And we've seen companies that have no idea what they're going to do because they have too many things in too many different places to kind of rectify this. And by the way, shipping rates continue to move higher. Forget about supply chain issues, the shipping rates themselves. So the cost of these products, when even you can get them, is much higher than it has been before. One of the things that has not been moving higher has been Chinese stocks. And basically since Halloween, when Jack Ma sort of disappeared and Alibaba topped out around 311, that stock's been cut in half. We saw a bounce this week in some of those names. I don't know if it's short-lived. I don't know if it has some traction to it, but I'm shocked that the US market, specifically the S&P 500, hasn't traded worse on the back of an FXI and Chinese stocks that have gotten obliterated over the last nine months or so. Yeah, you know, Guy, you've been talking about Alibaba. That was nearly $1 trillion last fall in market cap. And it's just interesting when you think about Tencent and some of these, we'll call them tech champions as they're referred to in China. I mean, the Chinese government have just taken them to the woodshed here and they don't seem to care what's happened to the market values, especially for those that are listed here in the US. I'm hard pressed to see though how the news this week that the Chinese took a board seat and an equity stake in ByteDance, okay, which is the parent of TikTok and how they might do that at Alibaba and Tencent. I, I just don't know how that doesn't continue to weigh on the shares here in the US. Yeah. And I would say Ginsler reiterated the, the bill that was passed late last year at Congress about audited financial statements being required for any Chinese ADRs listening here. So this is coming not just from China anymore about reining in companies there. And by the way, they don't care about the stock market in China. Maybe to a degree they do, but they've effectively taken Hong Kong out. That center for U.S. business is now gone, or for U.S. to launch from there for the rest of Asia is, is basically gone. And so 
we care more about our stock market than they do. But for Ginsler to come out and reiterate that, I thought said something as well. So, Danny, you just mentioned what's going on in Hong Kong. And when you think about it, you know, like, so it's not just here that the SEC is clamoring for better audits of Chinese listed companies on our shores, but the Chinese are also threatening these companies that they may have to delist here in the U.S. And one of the things that we talk about, the FXI, the iShares large cap Chinese ETF, the three largest holdings are Alibaba, Tencent, and Menowan, three e-commerce tech companies there. These are like three biggest companies in China. But all of those stocks that are in that ETF are actually listed on Hong Kong. What would happen if the Chinese made those companies delist here? Would there be a massive ARB here? Like you could see tons of money flow into the FXI if you wanted that exposure in China and Hong Kong listed shares. One of the greatest movies of all time. And I know a guy's going to say yes. I think Dan will say yes. The Big Short? No. Uh. Arthur with Dudley Moore. Forget about no, the No, false. Absolutely not. Dudley Moore movies are right up We're there done. with Cheech I'm and Chong with- movies. They <laughs> suck. You're out of your mind. No, I'm not. No, I'm not out of my mind. I'm not going to talk to you for five minutes. So you didn't see the movies, are you saying? That's that's what I'm saying. Okay. Well, Dan, Arthur goes into the church at the end because he wants to marry Liza Minnelli, and he's willing to risk it all, right, for to to give up all the money to marry her. I think there's going to be a moment here where China, at some level, comes to their senses, right? Because Arthur walks into the church, he comes back out. Liza Minnelli goes, "What happened?" He goes, "I took the money. I'm not stupid." You know, so he, he basically made a deal with his wow. aunt so he could, I didn't know he, we had he, Dudley he Moore on the, the podcast. Money. Whatever, you don't count. You're not allowed to comment on Dudley Moore. But anyway, but point is this. I think, Dan, you're talking about behemoths. You're talking about global companies. You're talking about... So at some level, things will probably simmer down. But I don't think it's now. And I think, this, to your point, Dan, it's going to create opportunity both on the long and the short side. I don't know what's going to happen. China's pretty unpredictable. So the guy's point, though, Alibaba was like 319 at its all-time highs last fall when Jack Ma was disappeared. He actually still hasn't been seen anywhere for a very long time. The stock touched, I think, 152 or 3 earlier this week, trading around 165. I mean, if this company really is this global behemoth, right, you have to think that somewhere pretty soon, maybe it's on an announcement where the Chinese take a board seat and we get to see Jack Ma again IRL. Maybe that's when you step in. But these stocks can't be just done. They can't just have the sort of secular growth story that you had among these Chinese emerging middle class and their move to like e-commerce. And they're so far ahead of us in many different ways as it relates to technology. I just can't imagine this is the end of the trade. Well, apparently Dudley Moore was in a movie called Monte Carlo or Bust. That was a young Dudley Moore. Again, I've never seen a Dudley Moore movie, but I mentioned Monte Carlo, obviously, because there's a gaming aspect to Monte Carlo. There's also apparently a gaming aspect to guests that come here on the tape. Bob Baffert came on and his horse won the Kentucky Derby, if you remember. Mr. Bevilacqua, I just like saying the name, came on and you saw the news about his entity and DraftKings, Danny, can you speak to that? Because you got the Midas touch here, baby. SymbolBet, as you guys know, is like an in-game live wagering app. And let me just say, I was just stuck in the car for 14 hours each way driving to Wisconsin. And so when my wife was driving, I dabbled a little bit on the in-game live wagering aspect to keep busy. That thing's unbelievable. Not necessarily with their products. So what is it? So DraftKings signed a multi-year deal with them where Chris's team, SymbolBet, will provide in-game live wagering odds, NFL, Major League Baseball, NBA. It's a huge coup for him. Congrats to that you know, entire team. But we talk about the gamification, right? The three companies that represent gamification. Ironically, DraftKings and that online is the safest 
You haven't heard about accounts getting hijacked there. You haven't heard about people losing their money there because they're doing it the right way. What a huge industry this is going to be. But Coinbase, right? The news today or the news in the last few days about people's accounts being compromised, money gone. Robinhood, once again, messing up by sending out free shares to all the companies to give away free shares to the people. Well, when you give away free shares, you're required by the SEC to mail a prospectus of that company to that person on an annualized basis. Well, guess what? Companies are forced to pay that whether they want to or not. So their shareholders went from, let's say, 2000 to 200000 So all of a sudden, these companies that are like 100 million market cap companies are getting bills for hundreds of thousands of dollars because Robinhood didn't dot the I's and cross the T's and figure that out. So again, huge growth in the industry in, in Coinbase, for Coinbase, huge growth in industry for Robinhood. DraftKings, huge growth, obviously, doing it the right way. So for all the gamified people out there, the safest is obviously in-game live wagering using Simple Bets application on DraftKings. So there you go. We have to have Chris Bevilacqua back at some point because he's crushing it. And you know what else is crushing it, Dan, before we get out of here? Bitcoin. I know you are like the BK is the Bitcoin baller. Well, you're something in that world as well. Bitcoin traded up to 50,000 this week. I am crypto curious guy. I have not seen since the end of the 90s something that, and from an investment standpoint, that's kind of caught my attention the way that all these protocols are happening. I'm, I'm actually least in, interested in Bitcoin as this kind of new monetary form. And I'm really interested in the stuff that's built on Ethereum and the idea of smart contracts. And just this week, I think we got to talk for a second about what's gone on over the last couple of weeks with these NFTs, these non-fungible tokens, because there's a couple things, right? There's these bored apes, there's these digital rocks, there's these pudgy penguins guy, and then there's these crypto punks. And Visa... Visa bought a CryptoPunk for $150,000. And when I tell you they got $10 million of free advertising and tons of cred in the crypto community, it was a pretty genius move in a way, if you think about it. And I just think the speculation and the fast follows by big corporations also says something to me. It says something about uh, complacency. You know, after it was announced that Visa made that purchase of that CryptoPunk, I think 20 of them traded like like that for like millions and millions of dollars. Well, listen, companies have to have a cryptocurrency strategy. We know that. We've talked about it. So even if they dip their pinky toe in, you think that's that's meaningless to Visa. You're right, Dan. It was a promo. It, 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 was, a, it was a way to kind of get recognition from marketing perspective. But there's tulip mania going on here inside of crypto. I'm not going after Bitcoin, Ethereum, but come on. I mean, we're going to look back at some of these things, and it's the tulips. And we're going to be 100 years from now to look back, oh, the tulips in the 1600s. Oh, the thing. Really? This stuff that's selling for that, these images? And to be frank, Dan, I haven't really looked into them because I don't think my brain could grasp it. On Monday on our Twitter spaces, Guy and I had uh, Malcolm Demiris from CoinShare. And she's been a active participant in the NFT market. And she's been doing it since 2017. And we had a great discussion with her. She really tried to explain it to us a little bit. It really is about stature or status, about access, about cred, that sort of thing. And, you know, it's funny when the ICO boom was going on in 2017, as crypto was melting higher late in that year, you know what the status there was? showing up at a crypto conference in a Lambo. And at least these people think now that they want to use some of the profits of these currency that they've stuck with, whatever one of these currencies or many of them that they've been in, and they want to buy something that's crypto native that remains there too. So I find it pretty fascinating. I'm not involved. I do have a couple of NFTs that have been gifted to me from certain people. And I think it's pretty interesting. I do own Ethereum and a little Bitcoin, and I will continue to own them because to me, it's just really an 
electric trade at this point. And every day I read more and more about it. I get more interested in it. I don't have laser eyes, but I do think that we'll be looking 20 years from now and we're going to be thinking about, oh, remember in the late 90s when people were really skeptical about e-commerce putting their credit card into a website? I think we'll be talking about some of this crypto stuff in the same way 20 years from now. Dana, you got a little bit more bullish there. So, you know, you're getting not brainwashed, but you're getting to a point now where that's about the most conviction I've heard you say, which is great, which I've heard in the same space. And I'm going to reference one more movie. I feel like Guy Adami today, but go ahead. Let me hear Animal House. Go ahead, Animal House. Which no, you probably actually, hate I like the Animal guy, House. No, Stephen Bishop, as I mentioned, was in Animal House, the singer of On and On, as you know, one of the great yacht rock songs of all. I can sing it if you want. Down in Jamaica, they got lots of pretty women. Yeah. There was a scene in there with Donald Sutherland, I think, where he's mm-hmm. getting all the students mm-hmm. high, whatever. And I think someone, he makes a comment of like, there could be a whole world on the edge of my, on my fingernail, and like those type of things. And I feel like, I think that was the movie. I think that was the quote or something like that. That's what I feel like sometimes when I hear about this stuff. And I try, God knows, I try, I try. I'm not shorting them. I don't, but it's just to me, like a lot is still left to prove on this stuff. And I don't know, Dan, now you're swept in. I got to have to reconsider my you know, stance on this thing. No, no, I'm, I'm not swept in. Uh, what did I say? I'm intellectually curious about it. I'm fairly certain that we are going to be looking back 20 years from now, and we are going to be talking about crypto the way that we're talking about a lot of applications on the internet. And the smartest people I know in their 20s and 30s are in this space. It, it can't be an accident. My point is that sector-wise, we're here to stay. I'm not making any argument on that at all. It's self-fulfilling at this point that the applications for blockchain and crypto are being instilled into systems that cannot be undone. Like every day that goes by, they do it. I'm not making a case to go buy a bunch of random altcoins, which are Pets.com, Internet Capital Group, CMGI. You, you. You That's all I'm saying. Excite. I got you. So, so my, my point is, is that those all those companies were ahead of the time. They just weren't ready for the adoption of them right now. And so our friend BK, Brian Kelly, who's been on the podcast before, he's basically making the case that we are in the mass adoption phase right now. That could take years. There's going to be peaks and valleys. There's going to be crypto winters, that sort of thing. But keep doing your homework. Watch this guy. I'm going to pull a guy, Dami, here. You know, when I think of crypto and coins, I think of the Wild West. You know what else is going on in the Wild West, whether they're virtually or physically there? <laughs> Jackson Hole. Guy, over to you. What are your thoughts on that? That was like a guy, Adami. That was a well done by you. Thank you. So what do you think these are? I mean, these central <laughs> bankers are going to talk about, Danny. I mean, they're, obviously, they're going to parse every word they come out. I thought they got tremendous air cover in terms of a taper uh, when they went decided to go virtual last Friday. Thoughts on Jackson Hole before we get out of here? I'm not going to try to predict what the markets will do. I think I can say, I think you guys would agree, we're either tapering in November or we will hear nothing about when we're going to start and we'll get that signal in September at the Fed meeting. I think he'll reiterate, he's had all his people out in the last week talk about, we're going to start it. We're going to start it. We're going to start it. It's just a question of, it's a two-month time frame difference, I guess, is what I'm saying. And to me, that's meaningless because he's going to start. But guess what? If he starts to taper and the market goes haywire, he'll slow it down or he'll cancel it. Or he'll double down and do $240 billion a month. That's my take. I don't think it's going to be the market that slows it down, Danny. I think it's if we saw a meaningful deceleration or some sort of like growth scare around the world, that would be the thing that caused them to do it. I mean, I could see rates rising too fast, too far might be the thing. And that takes us back to 2018 and what happened in the Q4 there. But to me, at this point, I just don't think it's going to be a 5 to 10% stock market correction that makes them rethink the taper. No, no. But Dan, if those things happen, the stock market will go down. The things that you're describing that would occur, that would obviously create dislocation in the market. So I think 
you're answering solving for it by saying it right there is that if there is dislocation and you do see that it will affect the stock market and i believe and i still believe it's the one mechanism it's the report card that the fed uses to see if they're quote getting it right and they're very short-term oriented in that regard, but we'll see. I love the Jerome Powell of October 2018. I will reserve commentary on my views about Jerome Powell now. You mentioned Animal House and Donald Sutherland. One of the great scenes in movie history, well, great scenes, was a bare-assed Donald Sutherland in the kitchen, if you recall. Well, we're going to have somebody to talk about the media world in a second when Rich Greenfield joins us on the tape. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. Rich Greenfield is a partner, media and technology analyst at Lightshed Partners, and a general partner at Lightshed Ventures. Prior to Lightshed, he was a managing director and TMT analyst at BTIG and the co-creator of the BTIG research blog. Rich has been covering the ins and outs of the media and entertainment industry for nearly three decades. Rich, welcome to On The Tape. Rich, it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us on the tape. Thanks for joining us. You're a legend, man. You're a legend. So look, Rich, let's just talk for a second. You've been coming on Fast Money for years, and it's there's that Led Zeppelin song to you Led Zeppelin fans out there. One voice is clear above the din is a lyric in all of my love. And yours is one of those voices, Rich. I respect it a great deal, but a lot's changed over the last 12 to 15 years you've been coming on. And I think, and maybe you can speak to this, one of the biggest changes is some of the feedback, some of the vitriol out there directed at analysts, not just you necessarily, but analysts that make bold calls. Can you speak to that? Well, look, I, I mean, the reality is, is for a long time, people don't like to hear negative calls, right? I mean, the, the market wants to, you know, is biased upwards. It's, you know, I think people never really like short calls uh, who own stocks. That's not a new phenomenon. I think what's different now is, when you combine social media, Reddit, with Robinhood and all of these online exchanges where you know people are trading, you know, essentially with a lot less knowledge. I think the result, unfortunately, is that there's a small minority, but very vocal minority, that gets very aggressive when they have a position. And sometimes it it isn't even based in fact. It's honestly, it's just they want to basically squash anything that comes in their way from a stock going up even if it defies the entire logic of valuation. And that volatility is something new. That vitriol is something new. We went out with a sell call, if you remember back in, I guess it was December of 2018, when Disney was struggling with ESPN. And we got a lot of negative pushback back then, but not to the level of that, that you see around the Reddit meme stocks, You know, whether it be AMC and, and, and the like today. This is, you're right, this is a whole new level of attack. And it's the anger that you see. And I think that's sort of, it's unfortunate. But the reality is the market always wants to go higher. You're not the only person saying buy a stock. But when you say sell a stock or short a stock, I don't mean don't own it, but actually short a stock, you know you have to be louder than everybody else because nobody makes short calls. That underscores the way we think about the world is that if you're going to be short and you're going to tell people to short a stock, you have to be loud and you have to be willing to take a lot of abuse. 
Yeah, so that's one of the things that I find interesting about your background, Rich. Again, as we met you over the years, you did not work at a massive bulge bracket firm. You had the ability to basically make sell calls, you know, and we know that institutions for the most part are the ones who short it. And I suspect, though, even when you made your sell calls, there are plenty of long only guys who like to hear your bear case. And so this goes back to the fact that you have a situation now with retail where they're predominantly just long here, right? And the meme stocks, they're just all in and they're holders or whatever the heck they are. So they do kind of pose a lot of vitriol at you when you're coming at that thing for the reason that they're in the stock market. Yeah. I mean, look at a stock like AMC. Cinemark is a sub $2 billion company. It's the same company as AMC. I mean, these are literally mirror images in terms of like the size and scale of their theater chain. Yet AMC has a market cap right now of $22 billion and Cinemark is under two and the better balance sheet is Cinemark. So like there is no rationale for anybody to own on the long side AMC. The only reason you own it is because you think you can bully your way into the stock going higher. But the fundamentals of the movie business are changing. You know, you both lived and breathed for many, many years in the cable network world. Look, cable network business is changing, right? Like there's no doubt that what's happening in streaming is totally changing the dynamics of the cable network and broadcast network world. The same phenomenon is playing out in the movie world. Like there is just a, a dramatic change. And I think the pandemic Unfortunately, for a lot of businesses, the pandemic has accelerated trends that were taking place beforehand. And I don't think you can ever put sort of the genie back in the bottle. We've learned new behavior. Things have changed, and they're not going back to the way they were just because you want them to. And I think movie attendance, unfortunately, for movie theater chains, is going to be one of those things that it just never rebounds to the same level we were at. Rich, I say this when you're on our show, when you're not on, I, I say all the time, I've probably said it two dozen times over the years that you do extraordinarily thoughtful work. And I mean that. I, I, I'm a huge fan of the work you do. Whether I agree with it, disagree, it doesn't matter. The work is thoughtful, right? So let me ask you this question. I'm not looking to play stock market here, but in the world that we find ourselves in, in retrospect, in retrospect, do you think that AMC call was actually the cause for the move that we saw. And let me sort of preface it by saying you empowered, theoretically, an army of these Redditors, WSBers, whatever you want, in addition to, by the way, the CEO of AMC to take a stand to sort of put a stake in the ground. Does that make sense? You understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. And I think you could have said the same thing about Fubo TV, which I think we actually talked about with you guys on air back in December when we made a short call on that stock. And I think it was $53 at the time. Fubo right now is trading at $26. I would call that an awesome call on, a, you know, I guess we're eight, nine months into that call and it's down effectively 50%. And we took a tremendous amount of abuse in that stock. It's been a battle on that stock every single day. And I still feel conviction that that stock is going into the mid single digits over the course of the next 12 months. But there is no doubt that when you make a loud short call, you certainly embolden some longs to want to get involved. And certainly this sort of retail, quote unquote, mob that I think you're sort of highlighting for sure. But the end of the day is all that really matters long term, ultimately, is fundamentals. The short term, the market can be very inefficient, as you both know. Long term, the market is almost always very efficient and it's going to take care of itself. And I think that's what we really look for on AMC. Has the last six months or five months since we put this call out in March, has it played out the way we thought? Absolutely not. If you would have told me AMC was going to go from 10 to 40 and even hit 60 or 60, you know, high 60s, I would have said that's impossible, 
especially when, again, there is an exact comp called Cinemark with a better balance sheet that has literally gone down over that time frame. Like Cinemark is down. AMC has gone up 6x. Like it makes no logical sense. But you know what? Time. Patience and time. We're not in this. We're not trading day to day. We are making fundamental views of what's going to happen. Just like we had that view with Fubo, and I feel ever more conviction in the Fubo call, I think you're going to see the same thing play out with AMC. It just takes time. I want to sort of amplify that point. Cinemark, AMC. The only difference that I can see is the fact that the AMC CEO has been so vocal and has empowered the people that we're talking about now, where Cinemark has sort of let the market do the talking. It's fascinating, though, and again, my opinion, that in this world, you can have somebody that has that type of platform and he can basically engage the troops and let them do effectively his bidding for them. Yeah, I think what's amazing, though, is that he actually, in his filings, legally has to disclose that the stock is not trading on fundamentals. He's beginning to sell stock in Q4 himself. So he's basically selling stock in Q4. His filings say the stock is not based on fundamentals, and you should be aware that the stock is not trading on fundamentals. The other crazy thing is look at the volume. This thing is turning over an incredible amount of stock in a very short period of time. I don't think there's institutions coming in and shorting this thing in size anymore. So this is just retail taking advantage of other retail. That's the scary part of this is that there's bag holders here. And it's like lots of common retail holders are just going to be left holding the bag on a massively inflated currency just because they thought they were a part of a reopening trade or a the save the movie trade. And it's great. You know, like someone posted in, in a Reddit forum, like it's amazing what people will do to quote unquote be part of a movement. And I, and I sort of feel like that sort of sort of underlies this. And we saw, I've seen a lot of this in politics over the last several years, and I'm not going to get into the details, but you know what I'm talking about. I think the same thing is sort of playing out in the market that sort of, this is more kind of like group think rather than actual, like there's no fundamentals underlying this. I mean, look, the reality is the box office over the last four weeks is down 50% from what it was two years ago, pre-pandemic. So the box office is not coming back in the same way that people had hoped. There is no rapid recovery. And the movie studios, I think that's the really, this is really the other part of this, is the movie studios are really rethinking what the right strategy is because you can't put out a movie. I mean, NBC puts, or NBC Universal puts out F9. It did the biggest box office of the year globally. It's on $700 million globally, including 250 of that in China. But F8, a few years ago, did a billion, two and a half. So this is a dramatic, even the best performance is down dramatically. And I think it just shows you consumers are not fully ready to go back to the theaters. Plus, consumers are learning new behavior, meaning they're streaming movies, they're streaming more content. I mean, think about what's happened to video games and streaming over the course of the pandemic. They've exploded. And you can't just put that behavior back in the bottle and say, go back to the way things used to be. Not to mention, we still are in a pandemic. I mean, that's sort of like... We're not out of this yet. And I think, you know, sort of the, the, the increasing question is, when are we ever getting out of this? Like, I think nobody sort of has that answer anymore. So, Rich, you just mentioned the movement, right? And we've seen it in, in lots of different parts of our lives. But as far as like financial markets, that's pretty unique to this last 
last, let's say, couple years. Crypto is clearly a part of it. I was out to dinner last night where one of the people at the dinner just sold a digital rock or a board ape. I can't remember what it was for like, I don't know, 130 grand or something like that. I mean, this is something that could be replicated. We have no idea whether it is really one of one. I'm supposedly it's on a blockchain or something like that. Speak to the, just the psychology. Like, how has this changed? There have been fervent investment movements in the past, but right now it seems like it is just really seeped into almost every sort of risk asset that that we talk about on a daily basis here. I mean, look, people have collected art for decades. It's not like that's a new phenomenon. And, you know, you would say anybody could draw something, right? Or anyone could paint something, but there is value in artwork that is pretty well established. I think, you know, look, is some of this prospecting, is some of this not going to play out? I mean, I look, I think from a light shed standpoint, we're really far more interested less in the actual end product collectibles and more in the infrastructure that supports it. Like look at like a Dapper Labs in terms of what they've created. So forget about buying the NBA Top Shots, the platforms and sort of infrastructure supporting crypto and supporting NFTs, all of that is fascinating to us as you look at over the next few years. And I think there's going to be a tremendous number of use cases you know, you're seeing a lot of people think about what this whole blockchain and, and crypto looks like in the in the video game world. I mean, imagine you can take something that you buy in one game and move it over to another because you actually own it versus being resident in a game. Like, I think there's going to be a lot of use cases of this. But I think, you know, again, this isn't, you know, I, you quote Jeff Bezos with, he always uses that it's day one. I, I think we're literally at day one for crypto as much as there's excitement over what you're talking about it's very early to figure out what the actual applications are going to be that really take this into the mainstream. Yeah. So you're, you're feeling more picks and shovels as it relates to crypto. Absolutely. Like that's where I want to be right now is in the picks and shovels business, the actual purchasing. I mean, look, you've got some of those NBA top shots, like values are down pretty dramatically from where they were six months ago. I mean, the value of any one thing is not clear to me. What is very clear is the infrastructure, those picks and shovels, that is going to rise in value over the course of the next decade. I think that's for sure, because there's going to be more and more applications for this technology as we move forward. And I think every industry is going to be transformed in some fashion. So since starting LightShed, you've ventured into, we were just talking about crypto, a bunch of, I would assume, some verticals that maybe were not on your radar at an investment bank or, or at your former firm or that sort of thing. But I see you tweeting and writing about the metaverse and stuff like that. How is that kind of filtering into your traditional media coverage here? Because your blog posts, your research posts, your tweets, I hear you talking about it. It seems like this is something that you're really into. I think sort of a foundational element of our research, and certainly the reason we created LightShed is that we've always been trying to look into the future and figure out where the puck is going. We're happy to be early. I mean, I think we were onto the the Netflix story way before others in terms of how Netflix was transforming the media industry and transforming consumer behavior. And now, you know, of course, we, we were pretty hard on Disney before they finally moved into the streaming world. And, uh, you know, I, I think we have very strong views of sort of where the world should go. And we like embracing technology. Uh, you know, we were early on the Snap story, early on the Twitter story. And so being early on technological change, I think, is really important and is a hallmark of our research uh, when you think about LightShed. When you look at sort of what we've learned over the course of the last 10 years, think about YouTube. YouTube is the single biggest ad-supported streaming service in the world. Like People like to talk about Tubi or Roku or Peacock and all this other stuff. But like, who's the monster? Like the true monster is YouTube. 
Like there is a, you know, it is incredible. The growth rate of YouTube as a business, it is growing faster than it's grown in years, driven by, in large part, by its success on the big screen TV, because more and more people are watching YouTube on the big screen TV. That is becoming entertainment, has become entertainment for an entire generation. So again, I go back to, remember where YouTube started? It was Charlie Bit My Finger. It was Double Rainbow. I mean, all the videos that I'm sure bring a smile to each of your faces. But think about how YouTube went from what I would say user-generated content from quote-unquote kids and you know non-professionals to where YouTube is today. If you take that forward, look at what's happening today. Gaming has exploded. By far the biggest takeaway, you know, Brandon Ross, my partner at Lightshed who lives and breathes video gaming, when you look at sort of what he's seeing in terms of time spent, the growth in time spent over the course of the pandemic in video games, it's incredible. And it's not slowing down. Even as we open back up to a degree, I know the pandemic's not over, but as we open back up, video game time spent is still growing. I mean, it's incredible how it's retained. And so if you think about gaming as taking timeshare, because we've got a fixed number of hours of time that we can spend with you know, doing anything in a day. You know, when Reed Hastings says our greatest competitor is Fortnite, right? Like he's talking about there's a limited number of hours per day. Gaming's taking share. And so if you think about gaming, this whole user-generated gaming world feels a lot like those early days of YouTube. You know, lots of kids creating very sort of rough not not monetizing terribly well yet, but all the building blocks are in place. People love spending time there. It's more interactive than even YouTube because you can actually engage with your friends and colleagues and family, et cetera, around the content. And so we're really looking at sort of UGC gaming. I think Roblox is probably the best way to consider in, in the public markets. Roblox is probably the best way to participate on it. But I look, I think the, the reality is the gaming space overall is going to be a long-term winner. And we've sort of put a stake in the ground that as you look at sort of where you want to invest in media, gaming is going to be the big one. We can debate Disney, Viacom, Discovery, all these things. But like, do, do any of them have the explosive growth and the potential as a platform that Roblox does? There's no way. I mean, Disney's got a shot, I guess. It has a shot. But like things like ESPN are just like weighing on them. There's like it's like having an anvil on your shoulders, right? Like it's just there's no way out to fix that business. Whereas, you know, things like Roblox still feel like they're very much in the early innings and moving from what is relatively youth focused content to I think going to be a much bigger, much broader business over the course of the next 10 to 15 years. It's fascinating. You've obviously been doing this now for a quarter of a century, and you've been doing extraordinarily well, as I mentioned. But Streaming Wars is a thing. Somebody will do a documentary on all this at some point. I happen to think that Reed Hastings is one of the great visionaries of the 21st century, without question, that a lot of people, for every reason, don't talk about or don't give him credit for. And I said on the show many years ago that Disney should buy Netflix full stop, and that ship came and went. But talk about the changing landscape here. And you talked about Roblox. You talked about all these things. You know, I happen to think that this Disney Plus is a bit of a lost leader. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm right. I don't know. ESPN was an anchor, but now with sports betting coming into the fold, maybe that sort of picks up some speed. But where do you see this whole thing going? Unbundling, bundling. I mean, media is not going away, but it's clearly changed in the way we um, talk about it on the show and and watch it on our devices. Well, I think the thing you got to think about is it really is this war for time. Ultimately, it's a war for time and attention. And what strikes me is that tech companies, if you were to get Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, 
pick your person across the industry, put them, you know, Sundar, Google, et cetera. You put all these people in a room, their goal, right, is to keep you in their ecosystem for as long as possible. Amazon never wants you leaving Amazon. Google never wants you leaving Google. Facebook clearly never wants you leaving the Facebook family of services. That's why they buy Instagram and WhatsApp. Like They want as much of your time and attention as possible. And I think that sort of is what Netflix's goal is. I think what you're hitting on is when you think about a lot of these traditional media companies that are trying to get into streaming, the quote unquote streaming wars, one of the real challenges is they're not all in. They're still balancing. Do they want you watching TV, their broadcast network, their cable network? You know, they're putting their NFL on their broadcast network. They're putting other content on their cable networks. Like they're putting other content in a movie theater because they want you to go to the movie theater. Then they still want you to buy DVD. All of this stuff, like, right? Like they're not fully all in. If they were, they would put everything they had into streaming. And it's that sort of focus. You always think about what do companies optimize for? Netflix optimizes for time. The more time you spend with Netflix, the more they can charge you, the more subscribers, the less chance you're going to leave, the more likelihood that you're going to tell your friends to do it. Whereas like, I feel like a company like Disney, at least initially, and I think it's starting to change under Chapek, but I think initially it was like, okay, if you come once a week for Mandalorian, that's enough. But the reality is then you spend the entire rest of the week on Netflix or on YouTube or, or everywhere else. And I think they have to realize that ultimately they need to, that war for time and attention needs to be their focus. And I think that's what everyone is starting to realize. And so I think the real question is, there's a lot of these services, right? Like in many ways, I think the person you can blame for the streaming wars guy is Bob Iger because he was so incredibly successful so fast that everyone said, oh my God, this is easy. I launch a streaming service. I put my content on it my multiple re-rates and everyone gets excited on Wall Street. The challenge with that is not everybody's Disney. Not everybody has all of the animated content and that kid's content that sort of is what Disney is. They don't have Marvel and Lucasfilms. And so I think the real question is going to be over the next couple of years, do all of these companies, whether it be Peacock, Discovery Plus, think about Paramount Plus, like do all of these services exist in five years? It does seem a little hard to imagine that they're all going to have enough subscribers at enough ARPU, average revenue per user per month, to justify these services. And I think that's going to be the real question is like, how many companies should just be arms dealers, meaning just selling content into this ecosystem versus actually trying to compete with Netflix and Disney? Disney certainly has enough content. Do I think they should put all of their assets into one? Sure. I mean, Hulu and Disney Plus and ESPN Plus with different interfaces and different logins seems absurd. But Disney has the pieces to be a long-term player. I don't really know. Like, ultimately, does Peacock really have enough to compete long-term? These are questions that I just don't know. And I, and I think that's going to be the real question. So, you know, right now, look, there's lots of room for all of the players right now. People are certainly looking for more and more streaming content. They're trying all of these things. But ultimately, can these things scale to be 100, 200, 300 million subscriber companies around the world? I don't know about that. I think that's where it gets a lot more challenging to, to see. You know, at the beginning of this interview, we, you talked about your call on Disney a few years ago. And by the way, that call was spot on. If you, I know you do recall. I remember the show when, when Disney was trading around $100 a share, languishing, by the way. And it was announced during Fast Money that sports betting was then legalized in New Jersey. And I said it on the show that night. This is the lifeline 
that Disney needs. And you can actually go back and look. I know you know this, but the stock has never looked back from that point. Whether justified or not, my question to you quickly, though, Rich, sports gambling and gaming, how important are those industries to these traditional media companies? Again, you know, I thought Disney should have bought DraftKings as well. Now, we can argue whether or not that fits in their ethos, but you understand what I'm saying. Oh, I am, but I think you're nailing the most important thing. So when we look at Disney, we think that the sports media business is in secular decline as a standalone. Like it can't, subscriber fees, people subscribing to the bundle, ad dollars for viewership, like none of that is working in the right direction. If you're thinking about sports media, you have to be thinking about sports betting. The problem is Disney can't be in the quote unquote sin business. And I think all of that just leads you to one obvious conclusion. And like, let's just step back for a second. There's no synergy between Disney's theme parks and ESPN. Disney's merchandise, you know, buying a T-shirt at Walmart with Mickey Mouse or princesses on it has no synergy to the ESPN business. So don't delude yourself that there's some synergy between Disney and ESPN. The reality is ESPN ABC is over here and everything else at Disney sort of has a world around it. If I were sitting at, you know, in Bob Chapek's shoes, I would unemotionally look at it and go, You need to have a deeper integration, simply an affiliate relationship with DraftKings or with Caesars or whoever they have affiliate relationships. That's not enough. You know, you're looking at look, look at what Barstool's doing with Penn. Look at how all of these, whether it's DraftKings or FanDuel, like all of them are realizing that they need to get, how do you get customer acquisition costs down? You need to be in the media business. So media businesses and sports betting go together like a, you know, hand in glove. Like they they certainly, there is a, a perfect connection. ESPN maybe not as the hottest media brand anymore, but they have a tremendous amount of content. And if you were looking for better ways to monetize it or other ways of monetizing it, you have to be thinking sports betting. I think the problem, though, you know, when when each of you are thinking about it is that can't be done under the Disney structure. It's just not humanly possible. And so I think the question is, is just what is stopping them? from separating out the assets. And, you know, I mean, Jeff Bukas was sort of the master, right, of slimming down Time Warner, hiving off things that didn't fit and just getting the assets smaller and smaller and more focused. I think as you look at the Disney over the next couple of years, if they can focus on the stuff that really works well together, I think the multiple will go up and I think investors would applaud not having to stress about the future of ESPN and ABC and let it go off and do what it needs to do because I think the focus, I mean, I can say the same thing about Comcast and NBC Universal. I mean, I think they're just very different businesses with not a lot of synergy. I think if you don't have a lot of synergy, there's a lot to be said for letting the assets live on their own. Uh, have you ever seen an about face to the size that AT&T and, and Time Warner have done? So, I mean, you're basically making that point right now. And how did they come to that conclusion? And how do you think these assets do separately now? Obviously, Disque, this is a, um, a, a very transformational deal for them. It's a very transformational deal. I think part of the problem, though, is this guy sort of nailed it and said, like, we're in the middle of the streaming wars, right? Like, we're in this hugely competitive era. And now you've got essentially a 12-month review process at the regulators, and then a 12-month probably integration process in the middle of sort of the heat of the streaming wars. Uh, Obviously, not an ideal time to go through sort of M&A, not to mention the resulting entity is going to be like five times leveraged. So it's going to be focused on deleveraging for the first couple of years. It, It just puts it in, you know, look, is the Warner Media asset better off being managed by a media company rather than by a phone company. Probably. Like there's probably no doubt that 
not having to worry about the dividend and all the things that AT&T has to worry about is probably a better future for WarnerMedia. That said, remember, the executives at WarnerMedia have lived under multiple management teams. It's sort of like this you know, never-ending carousel of executives and, and management teams and, and strategy. I, I think that's just hard, right? And so the question is, is like, there's going to be a lot of pressure on Zaslov of like, do you combine Discovery Plus and HBO Max? Do you go all in? Do you start shifting movies more towards streaming? Like, there's a lot of very big decisions to be made as these companies come together. But first off, you got to just get it closed. And, you know, then this is a transaction that may not close for another nine or 12 months. Well, I think you answered that question. I mean, they should all be smushed together, right? Disney should do the same thing. There should be one login, one app, that sort of thing. It, it goes back to the unbundling versus the bundling. Why does Disney want you leaving Hulu? And then have to go find your Disney Plus login versus just living with everything in one place. It's insane. All right. So, Rich, you know, Guy and I have known you for a while. I follow you on the Twitter. I see you IRL, as the kids say. You are known to be wearing ironic T-shirts here and there. Now, the listener can't see you right now. You are wearing a T-shirt that says Facebook on it. Is it ironic or do you just like Facebook swag? Uh, look, I think we're we're always sort of thinking about where the world is going, and it's hard to wear. I don't think you'll catch me very often in an ESPN T-shirt or in a Viacom T-shirt these days. I think we really like thinking about where the world is going, and our T-shirt game we're having a lot of fun with. All right, so let me ask you this though, because we were talking about things that Disney might buy or something. Remember years ago, Disney was kicking the tires on Twitter. Let's talk about some of these social media stocks. Let's talk about the size of these market caps. They've just they've got. To, to levels that maybe you or I, are, and I know you've been very bullish on most of these names for years now, but you know, I mean, Snap got to about a hundred billion dollar market cap. Did you ever think it was going to get there on the users that they have currently, which is dwarfed, right, by Facebook and Google for all intents and purposes? And what sort of innovation are you seeing bubbling up? Because TikTok is really the only thing that's kind of come into the kind of this universe, I think, in the last, let's say, five years or so competing for that attention capital, if you will. Snap's actually like a $115 billion company now. I mean, it's really what attracts us to Snapchat and has for quite some time is the pace of innovation. And I think they've really been aggressive in making the camera do more. And so really thinking about sort of how you combine content, commerce with the camera. You know, so just yesterday, Disney was was running a promo where a lens was on Snapchat. And so it customized your lens so that you had a Loki lens. And so you looked like Loki from the, the recent series that was on Disney Plus. But it also had a click button on it for subscribe to the Disney bundle, right? The Disney streaming bundle. And so they've sort of become more and more of a place where brands want to be like, remember, brands want to be part of conversation. It's not just about running 30-second commercials on TV needs more. It's how can you actually engage interactively with a brand, like where you can touch and feel the brand. And I don't mean, you know, in the old world, you said, how do you like walk into a store and touch something? But in the, in the mobile world, it's like, how do you interact with a brand? The camera becomes this amazing way. So whether it's virtual try-on, whether it's lenses where you transform what you are or what, what's around you. Snap's been really aggressive in making acquisitions and thinking about, talking about the metaverse and, and sort of where they're going. I mean, look at Bitmoji, right? Like, I mean, if you have teenagers or young adults, you know they live on the Snap map. The Snap map now has, you know, 3D figures. Your Bitmoji lives on the Snap map. 
that Snap Map is becoming is able to do more and more. You're gonna be able to buy tickets. You're gonna be able to do retail. Like that Snap Map is coming alive, and it's sort of like you're gonna live and breathe inside of this sort of virtual world. Snap has been a real leader, but look, brands of why the stock's working. Brands want to be part of the future, and I think if you look at who's pushing the envelope on where interactive those sort of I, I say IRL. But like it, it sort of is in the sense of like you can sort of touch and feel even though it's virtual. That's what Snap is enabling. And every brand wants to be part of that. And that's why I mean, if you think about Snapchat, it feels like it can grow revenues at 50% plus for years. I mean, their monetization levels versus Facebook are insignificant. So the user base is actually quite large. It's not anywhere nearly as large as Facebook's. But the monetization levels, there is so much headroom for them over the next four or five years. I think that's why investors and certainly why we've been so excited is how much growth this company can sustain. Remember, there's probably, there is not even a million advertisers. There might not, I don't even know if there's half a million advertisers on Snapchat today. Facebook just, they haven't updated the number, but it's over 10 million. So as you move from big brands like a Coke or a Pepsi, a GM or a Ford, and you move to all of your local stores, all of your regional car dealerships, that's where there's a tremendous advertising opportunity over the next decade. Remember, Facebook, as much as I I love Facebook, the reality is Facebook doesn't make its money off of big brands. They make their money off of small to medium-sized businesses all around the world. That's the opportunity of Snapchat is there at the very, very beginning of that small and medium business revenue opportunity. The audience obviously can't see you, but your enthusiasm comes through when you talk about this. And I will say that, in my opinion, Lightshed Ventures was the natural evolution of everything you've worked towards and where you are today. You're so excited about things, and it makes perfect sense that you created this. Can you speak to that, Rich? Yeah, look, I mean, I think you've seen a lot of some of the most successful hedge funds and now even mutual funds diversify from public market investing into private market investing. Uh, We've been longtime angel investors in early stage TMT, tech media telecom companies. We've always wanted to have our own venture fund. We see where the future is going. We make big predictions about it. Now we can actually put, instead of our own personal money, we actually have Lightshed Ventures Fund One, which is an $80 million early stage fund, to put capital to work into these trends, whether it's UGC gaming, whether it's sports betting, whether it's audio, Whatever these trends may be, we can now take, you know, we think live shopping, you know, sort of if you think about QVC for the mobile generation, content and commerce are colliding. Um, you know, we have an investment in a company called Shop Shops. Like we're always looking for sort of where the world is going. And I think from that standpoint, that's really what was exciting to sort of create Lightshed Ventures was that it really is an extension of what we were already doing on the research and media side. Well, Rich, our co-host, who you know, Danny Moses, could not be here. He's moving his son into college, but he said to say hi to you and Walt. And, uh, you know, again, um, big shout out. We've known him a long time. No, I know. He said he was bummed he couldn't be here. But listen, thank you very much for joining us. We're really excited. You know, Guy and I have always really, um, as he said earlier, appreciated your commentary on CNBC. Um, There's no conflict BS when it's coming from you. And it's really exciting to watch the sort of um, investments that you are making. I I look forward to your research as much as I do the rounds or or the the companies that you're investing in, Uh, like our friend Christy at Kinema and stuff like that. You're supporting projects that you think have great range. Well, but you know what I also think is interesting, the two of you and Ed and Danny as a third, the three of you are essentially living and breathing the creator economy, right? I mean, it is showing basically how people with talent 
can build their own businesses in 2021 and beyond. And I think we're at the very early stages of capitalizing and we're looking to invest in the creator economy in many ways. But I, I really think this is very early days. And the ability to create a business is obviously a lot easier today than it used to be. But you still need talent. You still need a following. And I think that's what's so exciting in terms of what you two or three of you are building is that you really can leverage technology to build your own business through audio and video. And there's just there's so many exciting things that you can build today that were never possible 10 and 15 years ago because the world was governed by gatekeepers. And those gatekeepers are gone now. And Rich, in the case of me, I'm hoping that people without talent can do the same. So I want to thank you for joining us, Rich Greenfield. It's been an honor to have you with us. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.